Well, as we uh, begin our second week of Advent, really focusing on the peace of God, um, it was a wonderful, joyous time we, uh, just to think about. We need peace. And uh, as we begin to prepare our hearts for the message, I have something that I would like you to do first. And then, of course, that's to open up your bulletin, because there are notes, places to take notes in there. But also, there's that place that has that connection card, that green one. And you know what I want for Christmas. And just in general... I would love for you to fill that out for me, and then at the end of the message, you're going to drop that in the basket as it's passed. Uh, I would really appreciate it. And uh, of course, there is a reason I have you do this every week, and some of it's for you. I know that I have you fill this out every week because I know that God has a reason for you being here, and part of that's to follow after Him more closely. There are next steps that that uh, you come to church so that you can be encouraged, so that we can all take together. And this is the first step of saying to God, I'm, I'm ready to follow after you today. So it's preparing your heart for what you're going to get in the message. But it's also a place to write those prayer requests, because I do pray for you, and uh, to knowing how it's, it's really powerful. It's also good for our guests, because we love having guests. In Christmas time, we get those. And if you drop this in the offering basket, guess who else is going to drop it in the offering basket? Our guests. And then I'm able to follow up with another gift for them. And it just makes us all happy. So there you go. As you're filling those out, We'll talk about peace. You know, I was shocked um, when I was reading about this, doing some study, that, that um, many sociologists and historians actually say, with a straight face, mind you, that this is the most peaceful time era in all of human history. That just, I don't know how that could possibly be. Because I look at the world, and we talk about how dark it is, and we're moving away from God, and then there's darkness, and there's trial. I mean, we'll turn on the news, and you see wars, like, happening everywhere. You, can't drive to most cities anymore and just, you know, hope to have your car there when you come back. I mean, it's crazy. And yet, they would say this is the most peaceful time in history. And it got me to thinking, like, if this is as good as humans can make it, we've done a pretty bad job. All right? Like, our greatest peace esteems pretty darn dark. And that's one of the reasons that we celebrate this season. That in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of our best efforts at peace, which I would say are pretty abysmal, that God came. And as, of course, our anchor verse, and I hope you're memorizing this for the series, John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And here's the good news with that. Whoever follows me, he says, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So even when it comes to conflict and this war and this turmoil in which that we find ourselves in, this darkness that pervades every home, every human heart, as well as every country and society that's ever been. We are a people in turmoil that the light of the world has come. And one of the great things that he's done is he's waged a mighty peace in us. If you haven't had a chance to memorize that yet, I encourage you to do so. And if you have memorized, let me like encourage you, take some time, really meditate on that. Think about the power of the light of Christ that brings us peace. As you're doing that, why don't you turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. Of course, this whole series of Advent, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. That's going to be our area that we're going through. And really, the Advent story, the story of really Jesus' birth from the Gospel of John. And, uh, of course, John, uh, the apostle, last apostle, writes Gospel. He writes from really a more heavenly perspective. We don't get the angels singing over the the uh, shepherds, and we don't have the Mary going into to Bethlehem and all of that. We find that in Luke, we find that in Matthew, but in John, we have the heavenly perspective, the, the really the profound nature of God who became flesh. And last week, we began with this story with the first five verses of Nativity, and it's beautiful and it's poetic, but it's also very profound. And it begins, of course, with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and in that light with the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we saw in there that's wonderful truth that Jesus is, he is creator, he is God, he is Savior, Messiah. And those are big claims, which is why John follows it up for the next two verses with the, just the affirmation of those truths through one of the greatest prophets in all of history and was well attested, especially in that day, was John the Baptist. And how John himself publicly proclaimed that Jesus was every one of these things. And having defended this enormous claim publicly and along with the contemporaries, somebody in authority that those who would have read this book would have said, okay, John did say this, and this must be who Jesus is. John now turns back to Jesus, and today we're going to be going, starting our, our passage, our, our study from John 1, verse 9, where it says, this is back to Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That Jesus is all these things. He is creator, he is God, he is Messiah, and we've always known that God exists, right? We've always, in the human heart, have noticed that we've had this need for a Messiah. That's why there's all kinds of different religions. We, we need saving, we get that. But the amazing thing is this God, who is all of these things, actually was coming to the world. The world where he created the thing that he had made, he was going to humble himself and come into this existence. The creator became the creator, the immortal became mortal. The righteous one, who was light himself, was coming into the darkness of a world corrupted by sinners like you and me. And of course, this was not new. John did not invent this. Jesus was not a, a fly-by-night Messiah, right? This was well thought out. It was through the ages, through the beginning of time itself, God had this plan and that's why even 700 years before Jesus came through the prophet Isaiah, God would began to tell the world just a little bit more of his plan. In Isaiah 9, 6, this is what he proclaims about this Messiah and his nature and who he would be and what he would do. He said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What an amazing promise. Right? He goes right to it. We need, God was going to come, uh, but he was going to be a human. Unto us a, a child is born and a son is given. The thing amazing that is like, that there's going to be a human boy that's going to be born of a woman. And what's he going to be called? Mighty God. An everlasting father. The immortal becomes mortal. The uh, most brilliant things. But, but, he also has this character, this nature that he said that he would have. It was God coming, but like Jesse had talked about this morning in communion, not to destroy us, but to be the prince of peace, to be a heavenly father, to be a wonderful counselor, and has all the attributes of God. As Christians, and uh, we understand the, this attribute of God, is, he is all-knowing, right? That's one of the things that God has. Is he, there's nothing that can be known that he does not know, and we would say that's that's omniscient, right? He knows all things. And he's a wonderful counselor. Because who better could you go to to have direction for your life than the one who knows everything, that knows absolutely what is best? That, that, that this, 
God who is going to come, this Messiah, is not going to lead people astray. He's not going to say, I hope this is how you're going to be saved, but this is how to be saved. Not, I hope this is the best way to live life, but this is the best way to live life. But he's not just all-knowing as a wonderful counselor, right? We recognize that, that he's all-powerful, that, that God doesn't just have the know-how to get things done. He has the ability to make anything happen, that nothing can be done with, <laughs> that uh, he can't do. God is, is unlimited in his ability, and he is a mighty God. And so he's not a weak God who would say, well, uh, this is a way, the best way to live. Good luck out there. I'm, I'm turning you against the world and against all the other things, and I hope it comes out all right for you. But has the very power to make his will manifest at all times. But also, we would say he's not just omnipresent, present, or omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's also omnipresent. He's everywhere. That he has this ability to be at all spaces, that there's no place that we can go that's outside of, of his presence and his consciousness and his will. So it's not as though that God is stuck in heaven and then he just looks down from a distance and says, well, they look like they're going, everything's going okay down there. But he resides in each of our hearts. He's a everlasting father. He is present with us from here forever. And in that, we have those nature of God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. We say this God was going to be a human. And the effect of his presence was going to be this. And his rule is peace. Isaiah 9, 7, a couple of verses later, he, he actually digs into that. He says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That is good, especially us who are going through an election year next year, right? Aren't you happy to know that in heaven, there's not going to be another election? Like, who's going to be the next Messiah? Who's going to give us other false promises and lead us along? It's not going to be like that. That on his shoulders of the government means he's in control. Wherever his kingdom is, he's in complete control and it's never going to lose it. It's not like we're going to go to heaven and then there's going to be a sequel. Like we get to heaven and all things are good and they happily ever after turn, so not so happily ever after. Now there's a new problem and then there's chaos again and then we don't have to worry about that anymore. Like real, true rest which gives peace to my spirit to know that there's a time for trial, but there's a day in which we have security forever. And his government's not going to end, but the effect of his government is peace. There's not going to be a war anymore. Not just between people, but genuine, deep peace. And it's not going to end. Do you ever get tired of anxiety? Of, of strife even between other people? of this friction and this tension, this dissonance that's in the soul and just rubs our spirits raw. In the kingdom of God, that is resolved. Peace that doesn't end. I think that's good. Now, Jesus came. Unto us a child was born. Unto us a son was given. Isn't that amazing? And the government actually is on his shoulders. He is king of kings and lord of lords, even now presently. He's a good counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father who loves us deeply, but he's also the prince of peace. And I think that's amazing. But if you're like me, then you say, okay, that's great, Aaron. That's wonderful. Jesus actually came. He did all those things. But where's the peace? If, if all of this is true, 
then how come I still have chaos in my heart? How come I still have problems with my neighbor or my coworker or these family members? How come the world is still at war if Jesus has come and he's Prince of Peace? Well, that's a good question with a really good answer that you're not going to like. But ultimately, I think you're going to celebrate. And by the time we're done today, you're not only going to know how that, where peace comes from, but how you can engage in peace and enjoy peace, even this Christmas, a peace that Christ come and won. Isn't that good? So what causes war? I'll tell you, you, you're a brilliant church, and I, I know that for several reasons, and one of those is you hired a brilliant pastor. <laughs> and, and here's why I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to give you the secret to peace, world peace. It's really, really easy. You can have peace in the world if people stop fighting. Thank you. That's my TED Talk. Right? That's all you got to do. If people would just stop being, uh, fighting at one another, then we'd have peace all the time. And, and I'm not the first to recognize this. Throughout history, lots of people have recognized this. This is why you have uh, all kinds of different governments. What do they try to do? They're like, well, you want something different than us, and so we're going to go to war, and we're going to make you want what we want. And you're just going to do things our way, and then we'll have peace. That's what Rome did, right? Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It wasn't that everybody that was under Rome was like, oh, we love Rome. They're like, we're not going to fight Rome. Because force and fear are powerful things to bring peace. Islam understands this. That's the whole reason for jihad. Right? That's why it's called the religion of peace. Not because they make everybody get along, but because they make everybody get along. <laughs> and if you don't get along, then you're going to die. And then there's going to be no one to not get along. Force and fear. It's the human method to bring peace. And we don't just do it in governments and religion. We do it in our homes, don't we? Right? We have two kids that are fighting. And you're like, stop fighting. If you don't stop fighting, well, I'm going to put you in the other... Uh, you stop and you're going to sit in the corner and, and you're going to stay there until you realize that you can't fight. And get you back together and then say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? No, they're not. But they're saying sorry on the inside, but they're, they're really not saying sorry. They're saying, I have to do this. Force and fear. It's how we bring peace on earth. This is the human way, but it doesn't really bring peace. We're in the most peaceful time in history, apparently. And why are we not at peace? Because there's a deeper level of peace that we cannot achieve on our own. It's not just the actions that cause war. These solutions of fear and and the solutions of force can only change behavior, but it can't change the underlying cause of, of the strife that we all live within. And Jesus is the prince of peace. He didn't come to impose a peace. He came to bring peace in a real and a genuine, profound way, a way that the world has never known. So if you want peace on the outside, you want to stop having wars out there, we're going to have to do a whole lot more than just force and fear. So where does, where does the peace have to begin? It's not out there. What causes war? You know, Jesus' brother, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually gave us an insight to that. He said this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Now you desire, you don't have, so you kill. You cover covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. What many spend thousands and thousands of dollars going to psychological classes in order to be able to counsel people, James summarized in two sentences. It's brilliant. 
The reason we have problems out there is because we have problems in here. That's where it begins with. I'm not going to war with somebody that I am not in conflict with. I have got inner conflict in my heart. And why do I have inner conflict in my heart? Well, this goes all the way back to the very beginning, to Eden, when I decided that I was going to be the king of my own world. When Aaron has his own little kingdom, Aaron has his will. And Aaron is a tyrant. And Aaron likes things Aaron's way. And as long as everyone else in the world bends a knee to Aaron and does things my way, we have no problems. But the moment you have your own little kingdom, you yourself, and you want something that I don't want, and I have something that you don't want, we have war. And we result back to the very things that has brought us all the trouble to begin with, fear and force. We'll use all kinds of tactics. I'll manipulate you. I'll try to... Uh, to intimidate you, I'll fight you, I might just run away from you and just be like, I'm going to ignore that person and find peace somewhere else, but I really don't have peace. We have these wars because each of us have our own little kingdoms. And this is why we have tension. So, if you live in a home with somebody else, you have multiple kingdoms going on. And you have little alliances that are happening, little peace treaties that kind of happen from time to time, but ultimately you have two little dictators or more they're going to try to have their own way, and it's just going to be nonstop frustration. And we get sick of the politics, don't we? So the same problem that causes wars on the outside we see is also on the inside, but James actually takes it a step back further. It's not just that we have a problem that I'm authority in my own heart and you have the authority of your own heart. That's why we have turmoil. He says, actually, if we take it a step down, you have problems with other people because... At a very core level, you have problems in your own heart with yourself because you have a problem with God. He says that in the next verse, he says, you covet, you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight, and you do not have because you do not ask God. What a profound insight. I don't want what God wants a lot of the time. And God wants what I don't want a, a surprising amount of the time. And so I still what I want, Right? And so what I often do is I just leave God out of it because I know what I want, something that maybe he doesn't. Or I'm the king of my own, lot, my own life, my own, fan, like my own uh, kingdom, and so I don't need his suggestion nor his help sometimes. I don't get help because I'm not asking for it because I really don't want his way. I kind of want my way. And so I go and I fight for it. I'm like, God, I don't think you want me to have this, so I'm going to go get it myself. God, you told me that, that I... I know your word, and it doesn't allow me to have this particular pleasure that I think that I want, so I'm going to take it anyway. And I'm not going to ask you for your help, because at least I respect that, but I also want to just leave you out of it. See, the real trial is not that I have my own kingdom and you have your own kingdom. Yeah, that's bad, but the big thing, the worst thing, is that I have my own kingdom, and God also has his kingdom, and they are in conflict in my spirit, because he is the creator, and he made me, and I cannot escape him. And as long as I have a heart that is set on pride, which is self-rule, I will have turmoil in my very own soul, and I will never be able to escape it. And I can do everything I want to to mask it on the outside, to try to be nice to everybody. I can try to make the rest of the world, I could do, you know, change how I live and all those types of things to try to create peace on the outside. But I will always have some type of horrible dissonance in my spirit until I resolve this war within. And until I resolve this war within, I will never be at peace. 
And I'll always find that that conflict is going to eke its way out into the rest of my life. It kind of just contaminates it until I go to war with other people, until I get groups of people that go to war with other groups of people, until we create chaos in the world. But you would say, Aaron, I do ask God a lot. There are lots of times where I talk to God and I tell him what I want and he doesn't give it to me still. Like, God and me, we're besties, I think. And so I go and I ask him for stuff and I still don't get it. And James addresses this. He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend on you, get on your own pleasures. Notice the focus is not that God doesn't want to give you good things. He just doesn't want you to be a selfish little person. He doesn't want you to be self-centered because that's self-worship. See, Jesus didn't come to be our follower. He came that we could follow him. That, that God is not here to, like a genie in a bottle to be able to be our servant so that he can submit to our will. I mean, we would be really happy with that, right? We want all the rest of the world to submit to my will, right? I want everyone in the world just to do what I want all the time, and so do you. And if we're really honest, we want God to do what we want all the time, Right? So when I pray, I want God to do what I want him to do. And when he doesn't, I get mad at him. I'm like, God, I prayed for this. And this is a good thing according to me. And you didn't do it. And therefore, you're bad. And I've known a lot of people, myself included, been very critical of God because he hasn't done what they've demanded. But he is the everlasting father. He is the almighty God. Not me not you. When we make our, our relationship with God contingent on how much he submits to our will, we'll find God will never submit to our will. And that would be wrong. So oftentimes, God wants to give us good things, but he has to withhold those good things because we're not capable of accepting the good things in the right way. And so we ask for stuff and we don't get because by receiving, it would only make us more spoiled. It would only make us more prideful. Only make us more selfish. Only cause us to have the same brokenness in our heart that's, going, that's created all the divisiveness that we see in this world. And he is the Prince of Peace, and he's not going to finance our little rebellions and wars. And so we have a war within our spirit. And if you want to have peace, we have to first resolve this. True peace, everlasting peace, peace that doesn't end, peace that's more than just force and fear-based. It's a peace that's going to have to begin at the soul level, a peace that begins to give us harmony between our own spirits and God's. Somebody has got to end the war. In, in verse 7 and 8, he says this then. Here's a solution. Submit yourselves then to God. Don't make God kneel to you. Don't make God give you what you want. If you want to end the war, somebody is going to have to surrender. And I'm going to tell you this, it's not going to be the almighty God. Right? Think about if, I don't know, Cuba declared war on the United States. Who would end up eventually surrendering? Right? It's not is that we're going to just bend our, Canada depends war on the United States. Who's going to end up surrendering? The more powerful one is going to be victorious every single time. doesn't mean they're right but they're the ones that's not going to give up. You have almighty God, and you think God's going to bend his knee to you? That's ridiculous. If you want to have peace in your heart, you have to recognize first that there is a power imbalance and that he is almighty and you are not. 
But there's also, let's be a little humble, he's also good and you are not. That he genuinely is righteous through and through and none of us are. He is all-knowing and if you think you're all-knowing, you're the least knowing of all people. That if we want to have peace, there has to be a surrender. You can't have two kingdoms. As long as you have the two kingdoms, you will always have conflict. There can only be one. Submit yourselves then to God. And then he goes on and resists the devil. Why? Because the devil is also at war with God. He has his own little kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. You've got to resist that, the rebellion that's happened ever since the beginning. Which is why, you've ever, ever wondered why when the shepherds were in the fields, they're there and they're all of a sudden the angels show up and they start singing. Who are the angels? It says it was the armies of God. The armies of God are declaring a peace on this amazing earth where the devil right now is reigning and ruling, right? That he has all this, the kingdom of darkness. And God invades this and his own armies are declaring a peace. He says, there's going to be peace on earth and goodwill towards men on whom God's favor rests. Why is it that the armies of God are doing that? Because the armies of God are at war. Even in the heavenly, even the angels, there is a rebellion. The demons and Satan have rebelled against God. They want to do things their way, not God's way. Just like us. But now there is, the real king has come. And we can end the war, so we resist the devil. We don't do things our way. We submit ourselves then to God. My heart, my will, my desires, his way, not my way. Even as Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as in heaven. Not your kingdom come so my will can be done on this earth as in heaven. It's not how he said it. That he's got to be king. And get this, if we resist the devil, he's going to flee from you. He's going to have no part of it because once you stop having war with God, you are part of God's kingdom and the devil loses to God's kingdom all the time, every time. So come near to God. Here's a promise. He'll come near you. God is not in the posture to want to be at war with you. We are the ones that have declared our own little personal private wars against God. How silly. How futile. So, how do we submit ourselves to God? Well, it means we have to forfeit our selfish desires. So how do you enjoy peace this Christmas? First thing, I think we've got to accept God's grace. Something has to end the war between us and God, and I can't do it on my own. Right? Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what is sin? Sin is not doing something that's bad. Sin is doing something that's in opposition to God's will. In fact, sin, so you can do good things and still sin. For example, when Jesus separates at the very end, the last judgment, he's going to take people who all think they're going to be in the kingdom, he's going to separate them in two groups, the sheep and the goats, right? And to the goats, the bad ones, the ones who will get in, I didn't know you. I'm going to get away from you. Like, well, how do you not know us? We did all these good things, and they did all kinds of good things. They like cast out demons and all these other things in Jesus' name. It's like we're going to give you the credit for it. And he's going to say, "Away from me, you evil doers." But wait, they just listed all these good things that they did, things that even in Scripture were commanded to do. Yeah, but they did it because they wanted to, not because they knew God. You know, in your own heart and your life, you can do all kinds of good things, but if you're doing it because you're obeying yourself, you're still not obeying God. That's just, that's not obedience, that's just convenience, right? If I told my son, hey, Tom, I want you to make sure you brush your teeth before you go to bed, and he was going to do it anyway, he's not really obeying me. It was just convenient that I asked him to do something he wanted to do. 
But when he didn't want to brush his teeth and he did it anyhow, that's obedience. It's when we submit our will to God, not just say, God, I'm going to follow you when it's convenient. And how many of us as Christians do exactly that? I will have a smorgasbord of God's commands and I'm going to follow what he wants so long as that makes sense to me and I agree with it. Then you don't obey God at all in any area. You're still just obeying yourself. And all have sinned and fall short. But let's just say that isn't true. Let's just say, no, Aaron, I really am following God in those areas. Fine, I'll I'll grant that to you. Let's just say that was true. It's not, but let's just say it was. You still have sinned. And sin is working against God's direct will. And I think every one of us could admit we've sinned at least once. If not, read the Ten Commandments. You'll find yourself there somewhere. And if sin is working in opposition to the will of God, who is the king of the universe then sin is a form of treason. You're declaring your own independence against God, and his, he has the authority to be king over all things. You've committed treason against the king of kings. And what is the penalty of treason? Death. Now, here's the thing about crimes. Once you've committed them, you can't uncommit them. It's not like I could go to your house today, hold you up at gunpoint, steal your car, drive down the street, ah, ha, 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 right? I steal your car, you call the police, my pastor went crazy, stole my car at gunpoint. Right? And then later on that evening, I have a moment of remorse. I'm like, oh, that was bad, Pastor. And I drive your car back, and I say, oh, man, I'm really sorry. Shucks. And I, and I drop it off. Would the police be like, no, we don't have to arrest you? If they brought me before the judge, could I say, judge, come on. I know I stole the car at gunpoint. That was naughty of me. I get it. But I repented, and I brought the car back. And the judge would say, no, I'm not arresting you for bringing the car back. But you still broke, you still violated my, my, the law. You still broke a law. You have, you've committed a crime. But what if I said to the judge, well, yeah, I know, judge, but consider all of the millions of cars that are out there on the road, and I've not stole any of those other ones. That wouldn't be enough. What if I said, okay, judge, I promise, I will never, ever, ever steal any other cars ever, ever again. Would that be enough to undo what I had done? No. And so it is with sin. When we have committed treason against God Almighty, we've committed treason against God Almighty, and there is nothing we can do to uncommit the crime. We cannot unsin. That's why in Romans 6.13 it says, For the wage of sin is death. We have committed high treason against God Almighty. We can't unsin. And that's why, on our own, humans can't declare peace between us and God. And that's why, in the midst of that darkness, we celebrate, for us a child is born and a son is given. Because in Romans 6.23, the whole verse is for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How on earth did that happen? How can God give me life and not death when I still had sinned? Well, it's by his grace. He gives me what I don't deserve. I get a not guilty verdict when I'm very, very guilty. Romans 3.23 explains this. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. And are justified, get this, freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The reason that God could give me grace is because, not because he turned a blind eye to sin. God is not like some California DA, right, who just turns a blind eye to the crimes that were committed and be like, well, we understand you had hardship, and so therefore, yeah, you did these things, but it was under $500, so there you go. That's not how God is. You commit the crime, he is a righteous God. You have to be punished. Someone has to be punished. So God says, I will be punished for you. 
And he took our punishment, death upon himself, so that we could receive redemption. Not guilty. So that we could be moved from his enemies and now transferred into something else. That's amazing. And that is a gift. And that's not anything that you could ever do. That is 100% something only God could do. And that's why Jesus came. That's the evidence of God's greatness and his love and his mercy. That God ended the war. He created a means by which we could finally be at peace with him. With nothing standing between us. And it says he didn't just justify us and redeem us, but he propitiated us. Which means this. That the anger that God has towards wickedness and our betrayal of him, which was deep, he took that too on the cross. He took his own wrath upon himself. And now there is no more wrath left. Which means that true redemption, true reconciliation is possible, but only in Christ. So we have to accept this. And how do we accept God's terms of peace? It says you are saved by God's grace. A gift to you. Through faith. All he asks for you is just to trust him that this is what he's done for you. And it seems unbelievable because it's so good, but receive it. And we express that faith through our believing and our trusting and our repentance, right? Our confession. We, we, we do that through our being baptized. We, we live by faith in our discipleship. But, but the moment you accept God's offer of peace, God declares peace in you. But it goes a step further. You can't just accept his grace. You also then have to accept his authority. You have to stop the rebellion. Jesus didn't come to save us from sin so we could just sin freely without any consequence. Right? It's not as though he said, all right, I'm going to pay the penalty for you so you can be unchanged and you're going to be your own selfish little kingdom in your own heart and your own life because then there would still be wars in this between us and other people, right? There'd still be wars on earth. Like He came not just that he could be our savior, but also that he could be our Lord. And that means that we need to submit to his desires, which are better than ours anyhow. In John 14, it says this. Jesus said, or replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The Christian, Jesus didn't come just to save us, but to redeem us, not just from the consequence of our sins, but from our nature of sin itself. And as we follow him, as we abide in him, God does something amazing. As he begins to rewrite his law into our own hearts. He begins to change us, transform us, so we stop being so selfish, so that we stop being so opposite of what he wills. We begin to lay down our kingdom, and as we do that, he begins to make his kingdom manifest in our own hearts and lives till it becomes natural to us. But there has to be a first a submission of your own life there has to be a, say, a point at which you say to God, by faith, if you're my Savior, you're also my Lord, and I'm going to follow you. And you're going to ask me to do things, and I'm not going to say I'm going to do them when I understand why. I'm going to do them because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are a wonderful God. You are a, mighty, you're, you're a wonderful counselor. You're not going to lead me astray. You're a mighty God. You're worthy of it. And also, this is where peace comes from. And if you want peace in your life, it's never going to happen until you, if you wait for God to make sense to you, and then you obey. You want peace in your life and the war between you and God and just start following him. And I guarantee you, if you do it willfully, you do it out of desire, you do it out of, out of obedience, but also faithfulness, you're going to experience an inner peace. That's why I have a Christian. If you want to have trial in your life, yeah, you can still be God's child, but if you want to go sin, you're still going to have problems. 
So submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Right? And then God will come and abide with you. This is where peace is at. So obeying God's will leads to inner peace. And as we do that, the last thing he has us do is to offer God's grace under his authority. That God didn't just come so that you could have peace in your spirit and just be this happy little peaceful person in this world of chaos, but that it would actually begin to spread. Like God's kingdom was not designed to just stay within your heart. You understand that, right? That we, we were commanded by God to share his kingdom and to grow his kingdom. And where is God's kingdom? Well, it's certainly not just in heaven. God is king of the universe, right? He is the king of all things. But where is God's kingdom? Where God is king. And where is God king right now? It's wherever anybody bends a knee to him and said, Christ is the king of my, my life. That's where God's kingdom dwells. If you want to have peace as part of God's kingdom, then recognize as part of his kingdom and under his authority, he has commanded us, commissioned us to go and be ambassadors of peace. We are commanded to forgive others just as we have been forgiven. We are commanded to offer grace in the manner that we've received grace. We are commanded to be able to go and to forgive. As uh, we forgive, we are to offer to, to be kind to others because God has been kind to us. We are the ones, the first ones to end the war, not because others deserve it, but because God has first given us peace within our hearts. Ephesians 4.23 says this, So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, notice what comes first. You have to be forgiven. You can't give what you haven't received. But once you've received the peace of God, once you've received the forgiveness of God, once you've received his grace and, and his love and his mercy, now we need to share it. And I think this is where you begin to see peace on earth manifest. So you can't see inner peace, right? You can't, it, how can you look into a side of a person's spirit? You can't see that, Right? You can't easily see peace within. You can see when somebody's filled with anxiety, but it's hard to really tell when somebody's genuinely at peace. It's kind of a hard thing to do. But I'll tell you what this, you can't deny a peacemaker. Somebody in their own heart, in their homes, where they're, they're bringing peace between conflicting people, when they say, you know what, it's not about my kingdom versus your kingdom. I'm part of the kingdom of God. And if you want to have peace, this is where you're going to find it. And it's his will. But I'm going to lay down my petty wars between me and you, where you violated my whatever, my sovereignty of my decision of what I want to do, and you have your own ways, I'm not going to fight those wars anymore. I'm going to forgive. I can love my enemies. I can pray for those who persecute me. I can be kind to those who do not deserve it. I can be kind and compassionate to one another, not because other people are good enough and they should have that, but because my God is kind and compassionate to me. As we do that, we will find that we will have greater peace between us and other people. It requires us to forgive people we really don't want to. It requires us to actually be nice to people we would prefer not to. Just like as in Christ, while we were his enemies, he was kind to us and forgave us, regardless of what he really wanted. So in First John 3.16, it says this, this is how we know what love is. Christ, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we have to lay down our lives for other brothers and sisters. This is what we need to do. This is how we follow. This is how we experience peace. So how do you experience peace this Christmas? Well, it's not rocket science, but it does require a commitment. The first thing you have to do is, is to accept the grace of God. And this year, you might have guilt. You might have messed up some things in your own life. Maybe you're at war with God. End the war. 
It's like one of my favorite Christmas songs. I think the Beatles sang it, but they say, you know, happy Christmas, the war is over. I don't think they had any idea what they were singing, how profound and beautiful that is. But the war is over. You don't have to be at war with God anymore. And he didn't force you into it out of fear. He didn't do it out of force. He came as a child, gentle and meek and mild, and offered you forgiveness. He took your sin to the cross so you could be forgiven and saved, and he's given you a better way of life. Accept his grace. As you accept his grace, accept his authority. If you have things in your heart and your life right now that you look at and you're, you're like, this is not God's will, this is my will, find ways. Ask him for his help. Say, I need to surrender these things. And that's the painful part. But I'll tell you, it's also the most liberating thing because that is where the real peace begins, right? That's where you begin to recognize as, as you begin to walk in the rhythm of, of the creator's plans, everything just starts to come together for you. Your life comes into a, a beautiful balance. So accept his authority. Call him Lord and act as though he is. And then the fun part. Begin to offer grace under his authority. Not because you're such a good person, because God is such a good God. So we think less about what I want this Christmas season, what I want from another person or this relationship. The question is, what does God want? And what does that person need? And what is my role in being able to be kind and compassionate to show those things? To become a peacemaker. I guarantee, practice this, we will experience peace even now. And this dark world becomes just a little more light. So how do you put that into practice on your connection card? I got some next steps for you. The first one, memorize John 1.12. Because remember what it says. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? Whoever follows me will have the light of light and will never walk in darkness. So follow after him. It's both grace, right, but also authority that he offers. Next things, read Luke 1 through 2 because there's a lot of cool stuff in this heavenly story. You want to read about the angel armies as they sing peace on earth? Well, there you go. Read that this week. What a great reminder that God declared peace to us first. Also, what you want to do, pray for your enemies. This is the hardest thing I'm going to ask you to do this Christmas, but it's a great gift to your King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? What, what a wonderful way to extend the real meaning, reason for the season, right? To be able to make the enemy the fellow and the friend. So if there's somebody you know in your heart and your life, this is the person that you just think about and your blood boils, pray for them. Pray for God to be able to bring peace into their life, into their heart first. Pray for them to change your heart towards them. Pray a blessing over them, not a curse. Pray for your enemies. Not that they would have nice things, but they would be reconciled to God first because that's their greatest need. And the third thing, or fourth thing, maybe it's this, is you just offer grace through peace. This week, you know, maybe you're worried about Christmas because there's going to be somebody coming over and you know this is going to be difficult. Choose not to fight your own little war against their little war. Right? What happens then? Instead, can you offer kindness and grace? Can you be compassionate to those who don't deserve it? Maybe there's a person that you can think of right now that you want to declare peace with. This could be a way of putting your faith into practice. Of course, if you're here this morning you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to declare peace. You need to be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you need to do that, take that first step so you can have peace between yourself and God and have all the promises of God and experience the very beginnings of peace. That's what I want you to do. At the end of this message, I want you to come up. I want to be up here at the end of the service and you can come and join me and I'm going to help you take those first steps of faithfulness and you can experience peace with God even this morning before you go. But for all of us, we have steps to take. So take your connection cards out. Please let me know what those are. We're going to take an offering in just a moment. 
please take those connection cards, drop them in the offering basket along with your tithes and gifts, right? Make this a first step of celebrating the great peace that we have in Christ this morning. Let me pray for you as we conclude this message. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a wonderful God, that you are uh, a mighty and, and that you are everlasting, but also that you're such a good counselor, that you never leave us astray. Though, Father, what we as humans can't do through fear, we can't do through force, you have done through meekness and through kindness and grace. That your, that your grace and your authority are the means by which we can now lay down our own hearts and lives, our thrones, to, and uh, take a knee to yours. Uh, you are worthy. And Father, that as we live according and, and submission to your will, Father, I know uh, that the wonderful peace that you offer us is a good peace, one that fills our hearts and one that leads us to joy and to love and acts of, of goodness, Father, that uh, changes us from the inside out, uh, training, training us from, from being selfish to being those who are, are much higher than that and more selfless and good. Father, for all of us that are here, we all have our turmoil. We, we lay that down at your, the foot of the cross. We ask that you would forgive us our sins, but also that you would help us to take up righteousness as we experience and, and hold on to your grace. Father, for those who make commitments today, help us to follow those in such a way that brings your peace into our lives this season. Father, for tithes and offerings that we bring you as well, may they be a gift of, uh, of, our, of me, our, our obedience, but also our love to you to build your kingdom for your worthy. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.